please open your Bible up to First Peter. through chapter 2, verse 3. Go over the chapter break there. Last week we looked at 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21, where we saw that Peter gave three imperatives for how Christians should relate to God. Three instructions. Maybe you remember if you were here last week. Set your hope fully on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Be holy. Conduct yourself in fear. In this passage, Peter continues in that same mode, instructing uh, with two more imperatives, although the focus shifts somewhat from how we relate to God to how we relate to others. But as we turn to our passage this morning, it's important to see that it is a continuation of that paragraph that we looked at last week, and so it is governed by the therefore at the beginning of 113. See 113, therefore, prepare your minds for actions, etc., etc. Uh, that is to say, this is not a freestanding ethical teaching that we're looking at this week, but rather it develops the implications of the Christian gospel for how Christians should live. Peter says we are elect exiles that have been scattered around. We're elect exiles because we've been chosen by God, set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. That's the gospel in short. And now he's spelling out what that looks like day to day. Christians, Peter says in verse 3, have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must live new lives according to this new birth. So we need to keep that larger uh, uh, background in mind as we read this passage this morning. I'm going to read now 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever." And this, is, uh, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This passage is built around two commands, but they're again embedded in these sort of long, complex sentences where clauses orbit around the commands like moons around a planet. So my outline this morning is simple, trying to pull out this underlying logic. My outline is simply the two commands that Peter gives us. First, love one another. Second, crave spiritual milk. Peter's first command is love one another. Love one another. You see it there in the second part of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you've been with us throughout the series, you've seen a number of times that Peter alludes back to Jesus' own teaching and his uh, life with Jesus, those years he spent with Jesus. 
Here, Peter's, Peter echoes Jesus' teaching to his disciples at their last meeting, meal together before Jesus' death. Do you remember there from John? A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. Our world is made up and experienced as all sorts of overlapping communities. Think about the different communities you're part of. You're part of a country, you're part of a state, you're part of a church perhaps, a community group like Kiwanis or something like that. Maybe you're part of a gym. Uh, there's less formal communities that you're part of. And they all overlap. But each of these characters, from the biggest to the smallest, has its own distinct character. Washington is distinct from Oregon. Okay, if you're from the East Coast, you may not recognize it, but if you're from Washington or Oregon and you drive north or south, you recognize there's a difference there. Blaine has a distinct character from Linden, and both, again, are distinct from Bellingham. These communities have distinct characters. Uh, I've discovered that there's a group of three or four guys who meet for coffee on Saturday mornings at the McDonald's in the gas station on the corner of Bakerview and Hannigan down at North Bellingham there. Uh, this last Saturday, they were set up with their tailgate open and a couple of lawn chairs in the gas, gas station parking lot there having their coffee. Uh, I have not had coffee with those guys, but even just looking at it, I can tell that there's a distinct character to that group compared to the group that meets at Dutch Treat for coffee every, you know, in the morning. So there's distinct, and even from the outside, you're thinking these are, you know, all men of a certain age and a certain demographic, and yet I'm sure that those groups have a distinct character. That's fine, that all these groups have distinct characters. It's fine that Blaine's different than Lyndon. All of that is fine and relative to a certain extent. But the question I want to think about this morning is what is the distinct character of our church? Or what should be the distinct character of our church? How should our church be known? Should we be known for having the most pure church in the county? Wiser Lake Chapel, they excommunicate everyone that they should. It is the most pure church. Only saints. Should we be known for having the wildest worship, the longest liturgy, or the shortest sermon? What should we be known for? Jesus says this to his disciples. His church, and therefore our church, should be known by our love for one another. Of course, we should love Jesus as well. We should love God. Yes, that's all true. We should love the world around about us but especially the way Christians love one another should be our defining characteristic. Our love for each other should be a recognizable marker of our community. That let's say, you know, just thought experiment, we had some kind of a booth at the fair and, you know, the Kiwanis are there and all the other organizations are there. And even if it didn't say that we were a church at all, somehow people should be able to recognize that even the way people treat each other in this community is different than all the other social groups. Again, I'm not against Kiwanis or anything like that. Don't, uh, sorry to use that as an example. We should be known by our love for one another. But I wonder, does this command strike you as paradoxical or even silly? After all, the heart has reasons that reason knows not of. Isn't that Pascal's famous phrase? The heart does what it wants and loves what it, who it wants. How do we love one another? Can it even be commanded? Well, if we think of love primarily as a feeling or an emotion, 
then it can be indeed difficult to see how it can be commanded. How can I command you to feel something for the person next to you? In fact, we might even go one step further and reason, I don't really feel love for the people in this church anymore. I look around and I'm more annoyed with the people around me than anything else. And so therefore, maybe I should move to a different church that I love the people in. You know, if you're thinking of love primarily as feelings, you might go down that road. But Peter, and I would say basically the Bible as a whole, does not talk about love primarily as a feeling. Rather, they talk about love as a principle that should govern all of our actions and attitudes. Love is a commitment to honor and benefit the other. Think about 1 John 3.16, where John describes love in this way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, that is, for our fellow Christians. This might literally mean dying in some extreme circumstance, but I'm willing to bet that for most of us in this room it will never mean that. So what does it mean to lay down our life for our fellow Christians? What does that look like? Well, in general, it actually means something even more uncomfortable than literally dying. It means dying to ourselves every day for the good of the others around us. Think about Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably heard it read at lots of weddings, maybe even at your own wedding. But Paul was initially writing there to the Corinthian church, telling them how to behave in worship together. Hear how many of these ways of showing love really involve dying to yourself. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Friends, we need to pause here for a moment for a bit of self-evaluation. This is the point where churches around our country are imploding or exploding. I'm not sure which is the right one. Maybe both. All kinds of Christians say they love Jesus, but they have found it over the last 18 months very difficult to love each other. And so you have churches splitting, you have people moving from one church to another, all sorts of things like that. So what does it look like to actually love one another? Paul shows us, and so we need to ask ourselves some self-evaluation. Are we, in Wiser Lake Chapel, being patient with one another? Are we being kind to each other? Do you insist on getting your own way? Are you irritable or resentful when you don't get your way? Are you committed to enduring all things with your brothers and sisters here in this church? If not, you can pray, as we talked about in catechism this morning, pray and ask God, help me to love my brothers and sisters. Help me to love my fellow Christians. Now you might be thinking, well, that's a bit self-serving, isn't it, Pastor Nathan? You get everything you want, and you're just telling us to endure it and go with it. Uh, and I, it certainly may, you may get that impression that all of our COVID protocols and everything are Pastor Nathan's way. But the truth is, in our, the way our polity is set up, I only vote if there is a tie to break the tie. 
And I have never had to vote on a council decision ever uh, in the three years I've been here. And on our council, and I, I, I was thinking about this a lot this week, how thankful I am that they are a model of what it looks like to practice this, to love one another, that our council, the elders uh, that we've had over the last two years, we have a wide variety of views on the council about how to handle everything. Uh, and at times, we have gotten irritable with each other or maybe a little bit resentful, and yet we're committed to working through it, loving one another, and so we come to compromises. And I, I love the way Vic Keel put it. He said, however I vote on an individual decision, once the vote's taken, the council's view is my view, and I'm never gonna say, well, I would have done X, Y, or Z. Uh, and, that, and our elders have done an amazing job this last year modeling that, living together. And so I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't myself do. That I myself say, you know what, I'm not going to insist on getting my way. I'm not going to be irritable or resentful if I didn't get my way. I'm going to be committed to loving my fellow Christians. Note, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this. Uh, please don't ask my wife after service how often I'm irritable about things, but it is something I'm committed to working on and committed to growing in. Well, Peter supports his command to love one another with two motivations. First, in the first part of verse 22, he says, Our souls have been purified by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. If you were here last week, you may recall that at the end of that passage in verses 18 through 21, Peter says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in recent times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, Peter's saying, by our obedience to the truth, that is to say, by living in conformity with this reality, with this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, our souls are purified. We're made holy. This is another way of saying what Paul describes as Christ's righteousness being given to us. We're objectively purified by our union to Christ. But notice what Peter says. The end goal is not simply being pure, but we are purified for sincere brotherly love. The Christian life is about living in love together. There's an irreducibly communal aspect. Friend, as much as you might like to, you cannot love one another by yourself. I know sometimes it seems easier, like if I just did this on my own and didn't have to interact with all the other Christians, it would be a lot easier. But you cannot love one another by yourself. It requires other people. And that means there's times when you'll want to get irritated or resentful. Second, Peter has this long, verses 23 through 25, this second long motivation. He says, we should love one another because we have been born again. We have experienced a new birth to a life of love. And this new birth, uh, this is the way you live in this new life that we're born to. And he says, this new birth is not through a perishable seed, like our first birth, but through an imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. Then Peter quotes this passage from Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. On my commute, I drive down, I think it's Washington Street or whatever it is in Ferndale there, but you go up to the uh, Portal Way exit, the second Ferndale exit, and along that there's all these maple trees, I guess they are on either side of the street, and I've been watching them this week with the beautiful fall colors. 
Uh, but even from Monday to Friday as I c commuted, the, some of the trees now don't even have leaves on them. It's beautiful, and yet it's so fleeting that you have about a 10-day window to enjoy the fall beautiful colors. And Isaiah, when he initially spoke these words that Peter quotes, he's talking to the people of God in exile in Babylon. And he's saying to them, even Babylon, the world's superpower of its day, is like grass which quickly withers. All of its glory, the hanging gardens and the, the massive armies, all of that, it's like flowers which fall to the ground when compared to God's word, which remains forever. So the exiles in Babylon have hope to stand firm on God's word and God's promises. Now, Peter applies this same message to the elect exiles dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire in all its glory is like the flowering grass that it falls to the ground. And friends, the same is true of our own day. Uh, America, all of its glory, good glory, bad glory, the good things and bad things done, all of it is like grass when compared to the word of God which stands firm. And then Peter says in verse 25, this word is the good news which is preached to you. It's the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. So if we rearrange Peter's argument, we see the logic more clearly. He says, the gospel of Jesus will remain long after flesh and all its glory have withered and passed away. The gospel of Jesus stands. And if you've submitted to the truth of that gospel, Peter says here, then you have been born anew. You have this new life that you're born into. And that new life should be characterized by loving one another. Well, if you're thinking in a logical syllogism, if you take out the middle premises, what Peter's saying here is that we can love one another when we receive into our hearts and recognize into our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ, which that gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And when you see God's love for you in Jesus Christ, and that you feel that love for yourself, it, it, it transforms your life, that you've submitted, or what does Peter say, obeyed that truth, you've submitted to that, that's when you start to have the inner ability to love those around you. You can say, I am loved and I know what I'm like, and yet God loves me, I can love my brothers and sisters around me. Uh, the clock got moved, so I, I, I'm having trouble tracking time, so just get up and leave when you need to, if you need to at some point. But just a quick aside, uh, actually, I'm going to skip that. We'll, we'll keep going. Much more can be said about all this, but let's turn to Peter's second instruction, and it's in chapter 2. He says, crave spiritual milk. Crave spiritual milk. See this instruction there in 2.2? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, Peter's continuing to develop this image of new birth. The seed of our new birth is God's living and abiding word. You've been born anew, and so now you're like an infant. And like a newborn infant, you should crave spiritual milk. As we get older, we get picky about what we eat, don't we? think, I don't really like that, but I like this. Oftentimes, we prefer unhealthy things. I don't know what your particular vice is, but chips, sweets, you know, whatever that is, unhealthy things to vegetables and fruit 
that we need and that are actually healthy for us. But in a, in a newborn infant, there's no gap like that. It's not that the newborn infant needs milk, but they wish they were having coffee or something like that. A newborn infant wants exactly what's good and healthy for it. And that's what Peter is giving us in this picture. He's saying pure spiritual milk is what's healthy for us, and our desires need to be cultivated over time, so that's also what we want. So it's not, you know, I want to watch another episode of something on Netflix, but I really should spend some time praying, and so I'm going to do this even though I don't want to. Over time, our desires are being transformed, and so we desire the very thing that's good for us. What is this pure spiritual milk? You know, wouldn't it be nice if you could go down to Edeline and just pick up a gallon of it and you knew, you know, pour out a glass and, okay, I've got my pure spiritual milk for the day. Well, older translations like the King James Version call this the pure milk of the word. The reason is that this adjective, which the ESV that I read this morning translates as spiritual, comes from the same root as the word word. Uh, so it's, it's, you could even say uh, pure wordy milk, although that's a little awkward. The problem is that the King James Version's pure milk of the word sounds like Peter is only talking about the Bible, but that's too restrictive. On the other hand, the ESV's generic pure spiritual milk, we might just think, well, any sort of spiritual thing. You can read the Bible. I'll go to the shop that I discovered in Bellingham that sells magic crystals uh, this week. It's really there. I can tell you where it's at. Don't, don't frequent it, though. Uh, but, you know, they're all spiritual things. Reading the Bible, having crystals in your house, it's all spiritual. What does it matter? Peter just says, seek spiritual things. Well, no, his language is much sharper than that. He is saying uh, what, uh, spiritual milk. It's God's life-sustaining grace in Christ, which is narrated in Scripture and preached in the Gospel. And so uh, the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster Catechism, and others, for example, refer to Scripture read privately and preached publicly as the ordinary means of grace. And I think that's what Peter's talking about here. He's not saying the words on the page by themselves that you can just kind of like move your eyes over them, whether you understand it or not. That's not what he's talking about, but he's saying that the reading and hearing Scripture preached is a means of God's grace. And what he's talking about is God's grace coming through Scripture into you and transforming you. He's just said that the Christian life begins when we obey the truth of God's word, which is preached to us, and we're graciously born anew. And now he's saying we continue in the Christian life by the same mode. It's not that you get in one way and then you start another way, but rather we grow up into salvation, he says, through the grace that is given to us in God's word. It begins and continues by grace alone, through Scripture alone, through the grace of God in Christ, Christians grow up into salvation. So friends, I ask you, what do you crave? What do you long for? One of the very first times I met my doctoral supervisor, I, I think he was in his early 60s at that point, uh, and I wanted to make sure he wasn't planning to retire before I finished my program. And so I was asking about, you know, if he, when he, if he had a timeline, um, anyways, it's a, a longer story, but I was struck by his answer to me. He said, I'm not planning on retiring in the next few years, uh, but he said, but I want to retire so I have more time to walk and pray. Okay, I've heard people give me over the years all kinds of reasons they're looking forward to retirement. More time to golf, more time to see grandkids, they're going to move somewhere that's sunnier. But I think this is the only time I can remember someone saying, I want to retire so I have more time to pray. And I, that's kind of my goal now, is to become the sort of person who craves pure spiritual milk, who longs to spend more time in prayer. And so, friends, I ask you, what do you long for? Is it to pray more? 
Is it to spend more time reading God's word? Is it to be transformed by the reading and preaching of God's word? Again, Peter links this command to crave spiritual milk up with two other supporting clauses. Uh, sorry, it's Peter who made the grammar difficult, not me here, guys. But the first comes in 2.1. Uh, ESV makes it a separate sentence, but in Greek it's actually a subordinate clause that's linked up with 2.2. Literally, it would be something like this. So putting away all malice, deceit, etc., long for spiritual milk. You do one by doing the other. As we increasingly grow in our longing for God's life-sustaining grace in Christ, as we increasingly crave spiritual milk, we increasingly put off these other things. This term Peter uses, put away, is the word you would use for literally taking off a coat. Do you remember in A Christmas Story, Ralphie's little brother Randy gets all bundled up to go out in the snow and he can't put his arms down? And then he says, I've got to go potty, Mommy, and then she starts taking off all the coats and jackets and sweaters and snow pants. Do you remember that? I mean, that's what the image Peter's using here. He's saying you've got all these layers on. We all do, not just you, but we all have these layers on that have to be stripped off. It's like Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Remember, his, by his greed, he gets transformed into a dragon, and then the dragon flesh has to be clawed off to make him who he truly is. Okay, that's the image Peter's using here. He's saying these are the things that have to be clawed off, and it can be just as painful as that. So there's five things that we need to put off that stop us from being a community where we love one another. We need to put off all malice. This is this broad, encompassing term. It's the opposite of virtue. So we might say, put off all the vices, the bad behaviors and characteristics that destroy community and inhibit a life of love. Second, he says, put off all deceit. If we can't be honest with each other, how can we love one another? But conversely, if we don't love one another, it's very risky to be honest, isn't it? And so those two develop hand in hand, that we are committed to being honest with each other and loving one another, even when we find out what other people are really like. And it's not always pretty, okay? Third, we're to put off hypocrisy. This is one of the major temptations that Christians face. It's one of the major reputations that churches have as being hypocritical. Are you the same person on Monday that you are on Sunday? If your coworkers or the students in your class came with you to church, would they recognize you? Or if we all came with you to your work tomorrow, would you look like the same person or are you living a double life? John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach who was a devout Christian, said, be, uh, this is the advice he was passing on to his athletes, but said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your character is what you really are, while reputation is merely what others think you are. The true test of a man or a woman's character is what he or she does when no one else is watching. That's what our character really looks like. I first read this quote in a book I was given as a teen called Character, Who You Are When No One Else Is Looking. I was given it as a young teen. It's a short booklet. It was influential on me as a young teen to think about what kind of character I'm developing, who I am when no one else is watching. But in the last decade, the pastor who wrote that book resigned amidst scandals of, of, of all sorts of infidelity uh, and accusations that have been going on for decades. And so even this pastor, I was so shaped by this book early on, I came to find out was not himself living what he preached. And friends, maybe you felt the same way. Sometimes you look around and you think, am I the only one who's actually doing this for real? 
am I the only one who's actually trying to live a Christian life? Is everybody else just putting on airs? Well, the good news is, no, you're not the only one. But sometimes it can feel like that. Or when outsiders look in at the church, they say, well, it's just in addition to all of the bad things I do, they do all those bad things and they're hypocrites about it. So they, why would I do that? It's just adding one more bad thing on top of all the rest. Christian hypocrisy, I would posit, is likely one of the biggest obstacles to the proclamation of the gospel in the Western world. Does our government do all kinds of nutty things? Sure. You know, is, it, is, is Hollywood preaching other messages? Sure. All of that is true. But I think Christian hypocrisy is probably an even bigger obstacle. Fourth, Peter says, put away all envy. If we love one another, we're seeking their good. And so we don't feel envy when they get something good. That's what we're seeking. Fifth, put off all slander. And friends, isn't it easy as Christians to have a concerned conversation about a fellow brother or sister that so quickly slips into gossip and slander? We have to be on guard. Second, and here's where I want to end, Peter says we will crave spiritual milk, and as we do that, we'll put off all these things that we want to put off. But second, he says we will crave spiritual milk, God's life-sustaining grace in Christ, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Maybe you've read Brian Jake's Redwall books before about uh, different animals and their battles. Okay, at least one fan. Okay, a few fans here. Okay, uh, if you've read his book before, you'll recall that he's famous for his descriptions of various feasts. In one, for example, he writes, Dishes went this way and that, from paw to paw, snow cream pudding, hot fruit pies, colorful trifles, tasty pastries, uh, steaming soup, new bread with shiny golden crust, old cheese studded with dandelion, acorn and celery, sugared plums and honeyed pears vied for place with winter salads and vegetable flans. It's a good description. You might start thinking about lunch already, feeling a little hungry. But hearing this feast, uh, hearing about this feast is not the same thing as tasting it. Or others, maybe the Great British Baking Show. Does anyone else watch this? Okay, no matter how many close-ups you have of the airy crumb of a piece of cake, no matter how long the descriptions the judges give of the flavor and the smell and the texture and so forth, it's not the same watching someone eat cake on television as tasting it yourself. Peter says, you have heard God's word preached. You've heard it read and preached. You've heard the gospel. But that's not the same thing as tasting it. It's not the same thing as tasting it. You can actually read all about Jesus and actually never taste him. What does it mean to taste God's goodness? We can see food on television, we can hear it in a book, hear about it in a book, but when we taste it, the food is internalized. It comes inside of us. It actually becomes a part of us. And so we taste that God is good when his grace is internalized, when we experience it firsthand. Here, Peter actually has a little pun. The word good, taste and see that the Lord is good, is krestos. And the word for Christ is Christos. So it's one letter different. And the confession, Christ is Lord, is basically then the same as the Lord is good with just one little vowel swapped out. And so by Peter's pun, what he's saying is we taste that God is good. We internalize it and we experience God's grace when we confess 
like Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or as Peter said earlier, when we obey and submit to the truth of the gospel, that's when we taste the goodness of God in Christ for ourselves. And when we taste the goodness of God for ourselves, we start to hunger and long and crave for more spiritual milk, for more of God's grace in Christ. And as we long for that and we're nourished by it, we grow in our love for one another. That's the kind of community Paul is call, or Peter rather, is calling us to be. A community that responds to the gospel, that tastes God's goodness, that then grows in their cravings for spiritual milk and loves one another. Let us end in prayer.